our wedding day was kind of a conclusion of a rocky dating period, um, just for me, uh, trying to rope in this great gal who I was crazy about, and um, at the same time trying to probably put on a little bit of a facade of, um, of pretending to be a better guy than, than I really was. And so um, a little bit of a sense of relief of thinking to myself that um, this period of facade was over and now I could kind of let my guard down a little bit. The first night of our honeymoon, you know, my sweet wife, who's so gracious and, and says that she had a great time, uh, went to bed alone, you know, while I was up and, and drinking and gambling with strangers because, um, you know, I felt like that was an okay thing to do on the first night of your honeymoon. And, and really the, the remainder of the honeymoon kind of started to put into place some of what it was going to be like for us for the first two and a half years as um, you know I you know I, I would say it wasn't intentional but as I systematically started kind of taking our marriage apart with with my behavior and um, with just selfishness and, and my addiction and all of the things that just continued down this road of destruction that would end up kind of melting us down in the end I spent a good chunk of that time, I would say probably the first 10 months to a year, just very, very unhappy, um, feeling like I kind of got tricked by him a little bit, that he wasn't really who he said he was. Yeah. Um, and also, I spent a long time trying to change him myself. As we trace, like, where I, we, where I went from becoming a problem drinker to becoming a complete full-blown alcoholic, was around the time where I feel like Jamie turned me completely over to God and God turned me completely over to myself. And from that point on, I really did my best all the time to just turn Rustin over to God every single day. And I just started praying fervently every day for a change in our marriage, for something big to happen that would just rock Rustin's world, that would finally wake him up and get me either a way out of this marriage or a way for this marriage to be what I knew God wanted it to be everything really took on a warp speed. I mean, it got bad fast. Mm -hmm. and, and not knowing, but Jamie's prayers were being answered in the fact that, you know, she'd really prayed for whatever it took. And so as it got worse and worse and worse, um, you know, I got to the point where towards the end of my drinking, the very last night I drank um, had just been a big night and Jamie was out of town. When I got home from being out of town that weekend, I could tell that something was different, but I didn't really know what was going on. Um, and on Monday afternoon, Rustin and I sat down together and he told me everything that had happened that weekend. I ended up you know, cheating on Jamie and um, destroying our marriage and destroying um, really my life. And when he told me about um, his alcoholism and he told me about um, the infidelity that had happened that weekend, it was kind of this overwhelming peace that kind of filled through me because it felt like I, I really did feel like the Holy Spirit was saying, okay, here's everything you've asked me for. Do you trust me? And we knew we were in trouble. We knew we were in over our heads. And so we sat down with a really sweet couple and we just sat there and we poured out our hearts very much like what we're doing right now. And, um, and, and the husband looked across at us and he said, well, there's some really good news. Your marriage is over. And it was like, well, how is that good news? And he said, well, the good news is you didn't have a very good marriage to start with. But what the Lord's going to do is restore and rebuild. 
And so, you know, the thought for us is really like God cleared us down to the foundation, just leveled it all and just went, okay, let's do this my way now. The restoration and rebuilding process for us over the last 20 months has been wonderful, but also a ton of work mm -hmm. and um, a lot of uh, just pain and kind of watching the Lord rebuild our marriage for us little piece by little piece by little piece as we continue to pursue him and pursue our marriage um, it gets a little bit better and a little bit better all the time when people say well you know what did it and it's like well of the thousands of things that we've seen God do over the last 20 months um, you know the biggest thing was we just came to a point of complete brokenness and willingness and just letting the Lord in to do what he does best and, and letting him have complete reign to restore our marriage. One of the most important pieces of what made, made this happen for us in our marriage with what the Lord did is really that He did it. He had to do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't change Him. I couldn't change our marriage. I couldn't fix anything. Mm -hmm. And the harder I tried, the worse it got and the more miserable I became until I figured out that I had to get out of the way and really let the Lord do what He does. Nothing happened for us. And I think that that's a really important piece to understand because I think we just try so hard to fix it all ourselves. If you have been here at Scottsdale Bible for any length of time, you've heard me say on more than one occasion that there is nobody, nobody, in this room here today or over in our 1110 service, which is simulcast live, that is beyond the hope and scope of God's power and his grace if we will let him in. I believe that with everything in me. And if you've doubted that up to today, then listen again to Rustin and Jamie's story. Because that was a marriage, and I've seen a lot of them, that was truly on the rocks. I mean, if, if ever there was a reason that they should have just called it quits, they had it. And, and Rustin and Jamie go to our 1110 service across campus right now, and I can't tell you how proud I am of them and the rebuilding that they have done and sharing their story with you and how much glory I give to God. You know, there's some events in our lives where, and I think some of you have had them, where you look back on the event and you say, only God, only God, because you're amazed at his movement. And if you haven't had an experience like that, if God has never shown up in your life that way, then just continue to hang around here and, and continue to be open because I'm telling you we have stories like that all over the place here and what God can do when we let him in. And so today we're talking about what happens when the marriage goes south. We're in a series on grace and family and we're talking about what happens when a marriage is in trouble. What do you do at that point? And I got to tell you humorously, I told the other two services about this, that I'm, I'm wearing my wedding ring today. And then as some of you know, I don't always wear it. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the fact of whether Kim and I are doing well or not. I and mean, we have an awesome marriage, at least so she tells me. And we're doing really well. And, and we love each other deeply, 23 years this summer. But the reason I sometimes don't wear my wedding ring, and I, I've been shocked by this more than anybody, is that the gold has shrunk over the last 20 years. <laughs> and... I did not know that gold could do that, but as I've been going on in my marriage, this ring keeps getting smaller, and to the point where it actually constricts my finger, and so Kim and I have actually have a, a fun-loving battle that I just need to give in on in our marriage, and that's that she says to me quite often, just go resize it, and I say to her, but what happens then when I lose the weight, and she's so nice, she'll say, just resize the ring, 
So I think I'm going to do it this week. I am. So some of you can fast and pray that I will. I'm going to uh, resize my ring so that uh, I can wear it all the time because I don't like, not, I don't like have, not having it either. So I wore it, though I jammed it on today saying we're talking about marriage. I don't want anybody to worry and uh, it'll be a great day. So with that said, why don't you bow with me right now. Let's pray. We're going to dive right in. Father God, we gather here, as Pat said, to worship you, to love you, to follow you, to find you in the mess of our lives and in the complexity of our lives. And I pray that as we focus on this topic of what happens when a marriage gets in trouble, if I don't miss my guess, Lord, that might be some of us here today or over in 1110. Uh, Lord, it's not uncommon in a fallen world to get in trouble in our marriage, even to get to the point where we think it's over. And so, God, I pray that if that might be some of us here today or someone we know, that, God, we might tune into your word Learn something today here, Lord, more than anything, as you are in the business of doing this, give us hope. Give us hope that with you at the center of our lives, everything can change. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I want to start off just on a really candid note here this morning and just kind of lay it out before you on exactly where we need to start as we talk about marriages that get in trouble. And this is where I want to start, and that is by establishing that outside of losing a child, I believe the most painful and difficult thing that a couple can go through in this world is to have their marital dreams dashed. I really believe that. I've thought about that a lot over the years. I, 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 I challenge you, I think, and outside of losing a child, to tell me what a couple can go through, I mean, this side of heaven, that would dash them or that would disillusion them more in their marriage than to have their marriage dream dashed. I mean, think about it. It all began with a beautiful wedding day. Hopes and expectations running high. The culmination of childhood dreams and lifelong wishes coming to fruition. Finally feeling like, you remember the altar? Like you've finally come home and arrived in that one relationship that you've longed for your entire life, only now to see it come crashing down in hurt, mistrust, betrayal, confusion, and loneliness. Folks, I've done over 100 weddings since becoming a pastor 20 years ago, and I can tell you that on those beautiful and hope-filled weddings days, nobody thinks it's going to end in divorce. Nobody thinks that this marriage isn't going to work. There might be the odd person in the pew that has doubts, but the reality is on those beautiful wedding days, everybody's rooting for the couple. And the couple themselves, they're thinking, this is it. This is the love of my life. I'm now set for the rest of my life. And so if and when that marriage goes south, what you need to know is that it's disillusionment big time for everybody involved. And the reason that this is so important is, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the Christian church, you and me, have a schizophrenic track record when it comes to our response to marital breakdown. We need to own this this morning if we're going to get anywhere with this. I mean, on the one hand, we respond with love, faith, hope, encouragement, support, understanding, empathy, all mixed together with Jesus-like compassion and truth. I mean, I'm so proud when I see it. I've seen church people rise up, and just like with Jesus, with the woman at the well, they combine truth and grace in such a way that it redefines wins winsome and even compassion. And it's awesome when I see this. But then at the same breath, and I think you've seen this too, Christians can be so very judgmental and condemning and condescending and harsh. We've seen that as well. We take individuals in a marital breakdown situation who, as we've already established, already have a deep sense of disillusionment and failure, and we just grind it in with our more holier-than-thou attitudes, with our harshness, with our judgmentalism. 
And that's why many people, when they go through a marital breakdown, don't want to mention it to you. Because the reality is they know it's hit or miss when it comes to the Christian church on whether we're going to be compassionate or judgmental. We tend to be all over the map. Caring and compassionate at one point, harsh and judgmental the next. And the reason that that's important is that you need to know that this is a series that I intentionally called Grace and the Family. Did you catch that? Grace and the Family. So we're taking a look at how God's grace built upon his truth bears on this idea of the family. And so we're going to err on anything in this series. We're going to err on the side of what does God's grace say, what does Jesus' grace say about even very difficult times like when the marriage doesn't work. And so in keeping with Jesus' ethic of grace and truth, I want to share with you in our time remaining this morning three key things that God in the Bible has revealed to us that we can do when our marriages are in trouble and even when our marriages are in deep trouble. Three things that you can apply to your own situation right now or at the very least use to encourage those who are struggling in their own marriages. Three things that the Bible tells us we can do when the marriage goes south. And though I know there are more than three things, I mean, there's lots of things the Bible shares with us, these are simply three foundational things that have been on my heart and mind recently when it comes to dealing with difficult marital situations. So here's the first thing, and that is you need to reignite communication. You need to reignite communication. Folks, listen, study after study, marriage expert after marriage expert all confirm that the number one reason that marriages get into trouble is due to non-existent, faulty, or inadequate communication. It's true. In fact, check this out. In a recent study posted in the Journal of Marriage and the Family, a study done on the perceived and self-attested reasons that people eventually got divorced, they found that in both the men and the women groups polled, the number one reason cited was, and I quote, communication problems. Communication problems. Over two-thirds of women polled and just under two-thirds of men polled all agreed that the number one problem that led to their marital dissolution was communication issues. Uh, unhappiness and incompatibility was a distant second. Abuse and financial problems, an even more distant third. Sexual problems, a distant fourth. And infidelity, which everyone tends to think of when they think of, of divorce, didn't even rank in the top six reasons for men or the top seven reasons for women. Isn't that interesting? It was communication. In fact, I found this funny, if not pathetic. More men actually said that their in-laws were a reason for divorce than they said because their wife had an affair. That's interesting. More men blamed the in-laws for their divorce than they pointed to an infidelity. You can do with that what you want. But the reality is, is that it's not what we think. Psychologists, pastors, social workers, anybody who's in the people-helping field knows this point. Communication is the number one culprit when it comes to marital breakdown. And so with this understanding, now let's look at one of the most famous passages in all of the New Testament. If you brought a Bible, open up to James chapter 1, verse 19. 11.10, James chapter 1, verse 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. You can't escape the word here at Scottsdale Bible. We're going to put it up here on the screen. James chapter 1, verse 19. Look at what it says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Stop right there. Quick to hear, slow to speak, 
slow to anger. And I would submit to you that contained in this simple but profound passage is the recipe to reigniting communication, namely to listen really well, speak in a timely and wise way, and watch your attitude the whole time. You know, it's fascinating. That word quick here, when it says be quick to listen, in the original language that the New Testament was written in, means to be swift and fast. And it carries the connotation of doing whatever you're going to do sooner rather than later. So that you are so quick and swift at what you're doing that it happens sooner than later. There's an urgency factor to this idea of being quick. And so combining this with then the idea of listening, what James 1.19 is saying here, don't miss this, is that your knee-jerk response to any relational interaction, your first order of business is not to say anything, or to try to fix anything, or even to try to do anything, but simply to listen. And listen in the form of hearing, trying to truly understand what the other person is saying. Be quick to hear. And then you got that next phrase, be slow to speak. As many of you know, I'm a dork when it comes to words. One of the things I love about the Bible is the fact that it's God's word and words to us. And so I hang, as good theologians should do, on every word that God has uttered in the Bible. And so I looked up that word for speak this week in the original language, the Greek language that the New Testament is written in. And you know what that word speak literally means? To speak. Isn't that interesting? It means to speak. In other words, it simply means to utter a sound with your mouth to form a word in order to communicate with another person. Duh, it means to speak. And yet the hinge word here is that word slow. Fascinating word. In the original language, it means to be dull, to be sluggish. Let that sink in a minute. Dull and sluggish. Two words that you and I usually associate with laziness, slothfulness, an unmotivated person. God is saying this. He's saying, after you've rushed into listening, when it comes to you speaking now into another person's life, be very careful, be slow, be calculated, be even lazy, slothful, dull, and sluggish about it. In a very real way, way, God is saying, if ever you're a couch potato, be one here. He's saying it's okay to sit on the couch and be slow and sluggish about the words that you use. Be quick to listen. Be really slow of speech. Two keys to healthy communication here. Learning to listen right out of the chute and listen in such a way as to hear and then speak with calculated, non-reactionary, unrushed, very thoughtful words. Now with that understanding, let me ask you guys something. How many of you here this morning do this really well on a regular basis. Raise your hand here today if you are a poster child for James 1.19 kind of communication. <laughs> I tease the other two services that there'd be some bonehead in the third service that would raise their hand. I didn't mean to pick on you guys. It's just that, you know, I just thought for sure out of three services there'd be some husband, the idiot he would be, that would go like this, Right? Maybe it happened in the 1110, I don't know. But it doesn't surprise me that not one of us, isn't this a little sad though, not one of us raises our hand to say that we do really well at James 1.19. But that's revealing. Let me ask it in a maybe a less shameful, more positive way because I would answer yes to the question I'm about to ask. How many of you have some people in your life right now, maybe a friend, a coworker, a spiritual mentor, a father, or, or maybe a counselor that you see, that really does do James 119 well, that's quick to listen to you 
and that is rather slow in their communication to you, but does a really good job of it. Raise your hand if you've got somebody like that in your life. Yeah, a, a much more higher percentage of you. Not as high as I'd like to see, but definitely more higher percentage. Now let me ask you this, for those of you who answered yes to that, uh, do you like being around those people? Do you feel valued and loved by them? Are you faithful to the friendship you have with them as a result? My guess is yes to all of the above. Here's what we learn. Communication is a powerful, powerful thing. This idea of simply hearing in a quick fashion, being quick to listen, and then speaking with wise choice words is something that we all long for. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, but Jamie, I don't know how to listen really well. That's why I didn't raise my hand. And I've never been taught how to speak in clear and life-giving ways. And you know, the passage mentioned anger, and anger always seems to get in the way whenever I try to communicate anything, especially for us guys. And so what do I do then? If that's you, I want to share with you two things real quick before we move on to the next point. Two things that just might help you if you find yourself ever saying, but I'm an infant, I'm a child, when it comes to this idea of communication. First, then I would challenge you to use the myriad of resources out there and teach yourself how to speak and how to listen. Uh, folks, listen to this. This is true, and this is going to sound like an overstatement, but it's really true. Did you know that today... We live in the most resourced generation of Christians that have ever lived in the history of the known world. Did you know that? I mean, we have more resources at our disposal today, books, Christian magazines, Christian radio, Christian seminars, Christian CDs, Christian authors, I mean, out there that are writing books every single day that help us in applying our Christianity than any other generation in the history of the known world. I mean, we are so blessed with resources that help us do or live the Christian life. I mean, I marvel at it sometimes. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad I was not born in 17th century provincial France, aren't you? I mean, if you were born like 300 years ago in the western part of the world in France, you would have your choice of two churches in town, Protestant or Catholic, and you'd have to choose between them. And if you didn't like either of them, tough. And most people didn't move back then, so you'd be born and raised in this entire town. And if you ever had a problem living out your Christianity, there'd be a chance that you might read five books in your entire life, but you'd have no radio, you'd have no TV, you'd have no books all over the place, you'd have no magazines, and you'd have no professional counselors, you'd have just your pastor, that's scary, that you'd go to in order to have to talk about the problems that you have. And so you and I, you see how blessed we are today? We have resources everywhere. So I don't believe there's an excuse for any of us, especially men, when it, comes out to learn, when it comes to learning how to listen and communicate with those that we love the most. In fact, even the book that we're asking you to read, this uh, series that we're in, one of them is John Trent's The Blessing. I'd encourage you to buy that if this is at all you today, because that book is simply about how to speak a blessing into the lives of those that you love the most. And it's a time-tested, wonderful book. So first thing I would say is just avail yourself of the resources. But a second way I would respond to the often heard comment that I don't know how to listen or speak very well to those that I love is that I'd also say, and I say this lovingly, stop using lack of an experience as an excuse and just do it. In other words, folks, think about what you're saying when you say that you don't know how to listen and you don't know how to speak clearly. I mean, for crying out loud, you're a human being made in the image of God. 
And for you to say that you don't know how to discipline yourself to listen to another human being and you don't know how to discipline yourself to watch your tongue and speak only life-giving words to those around you is kind of like a dog saying he doesn't know how to hunt or a pig saying, teach me how to eat slop. I would submit to you that you're hardwired from creation because you're made in the image of God to do exactly those things. You and I are hardwired for relational activity. And I know some of you men say, but Jamie, it just doesn't come natural to me. I get it. But the reality is, is that God said he has put it in you. And if you're a Christian, like, duh, you even got the Holy Spirit in you. And think about this logic. Why would God command you to be quick to listen and slow to speak if by the power of the Holy Spirit you couldn't do it? In other words, go back to 17th century provincial France. Could you believe me? When they died and went to heaven, they weren't sitting there saying, well, you know what, I really made a mess of my marriage because we didn't have Gary Chapman back in the 17th century. I mean, they weren't saying that. They couldn't blame the lack of resources. No, God said you have the Holy Spirit living in you, so be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. In a very real sense, he says just do it. And so I guess what I'm saying, folks, is I don't think that it's a lack of resources or even a lack of innate knowledge that prevents many of us, if not all of us, from igniting the kind of communication that can save our marriages. I don't. But I do think there is something going on. I do think there is something deeper. And this brings us to the second thing that the Bible says to us when the marriage goes south, and this will play right into the first one, and that is that you need to resist pride. You need to resist pride. Folks, this one is so key. Believe me, I don't think that our excuse for not listening and for speaking wisely into people's lives, we can blame on resources or lack of knowledge or anything like that, but I do think if there's any culprit that keeps us from seeing our marriages healed, is pride. I want you to look at a string of relevant passages from the Proverbs on this exact subject. I'm going to string some passages together here, and I want you to follow the logic of what the Proverbs walks us through here when it comes to pride. Then we'll put this together. Look at Proverbs 16, verse 18. It says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So just start there. Pride, it tells us, leads to destruction. Then, in getting more specific, notice Proverbs 13, verse 10. It says, pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Interesting, many of us have found this. Pride causes arguments and verbal fights among us. We'll get more to that in just a minute here. Uh, but then, notice the result of all of this pride. Look at Proverbs 29, verse 23, when it says, A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Focus on that little phrase, brings him low. We all know this. It simply means that when pride run, ran, runs rampant in your relational base, you're going to be alone. Nobody wants to be around you. You're going to be brought low emotionally, relationally, even spiritually when it comes to God. And then notice the most revealing summary that Proverbs 18 verse 12 gives us when it says, Before his downfall, a man's heart is pride, but humility comes before honor. That's a powerful passage there. It's simply saying that when we upstream our problems, when we realize what happened way before the problem came down the pike, you're going to find pride. You're going to find pride as the culprit. Genesis chapter 3 in the problems, especially relationally, that you and I tend to have. So do you see, over and over again, like a scratch CD, the Bible warns us of the destructive power of this thing called pride. And just so you and I are clear, here are the two key things you need to realize about pride. Look up here on the screen. One is that it lives in each and every one of us. 
It's universal by nature, which means there's not one of us here in this worship center right now, not one person over there at 1110 that has escaped the effects of pride. I saw one of our 93-year-old saints in the last service, 93 years old. He's been a Christian like twice as long as I've been alive. And I'm telling you, if I asked Ed, hey, do you still struggle with pride now and then? After all of your years of walking with the Lord, what do you think he would have said? Yes. If he said anything else, he'd be prideful, right? Yes, of course he would struggle with pride. All of us tend to struggle with pride. But that's not the most important thing. Here's the second thing you need to know about pride that will get you somewhere. And that is that it's very nature. Now, did you know this? The very nature of pride causes us at all costs to protect self and never admit that we are wrong or morally culpable in a situation. That should scare us. Pride is that power and lure within that is bent on elevating yourself to unimaginable proportions. And in so doing, it literally convinces us in our mind and heart that we are a bit higher than we really are, that we are a bit more right than we really are. And now you can see why pride is such a destroyer of a marriage. Because if you walk around thinking that you're better than your wife or your husband thinks you are, and even that you're more right than your husband or wife thinks you are, then right there, that's a recipe for disaster. And the reason all of us have experienced this in the past before is, let me ask you, have you ever had a time when you were in a conflict or argument with your spouse, and even though you knew they were right, that the facts were clearly on their side and the scales were inarguably tipped in their favor, there was no way you were going to admit it and give them the satisfaction of being right. Raise your hand if you've ever done that in marriage. Oh, come on, you guys are losers. Every hand should be going up right now. I, I, I've done that so many times I can't count on it, where Kim is right and I know she's right, but I don't want to give her the satisfaction of knowing she's right. What is that in me that does that? It's pride. At that moment, God and the Bible have nailed me and said, Jamie, pride is living in you. And though we laugh about it, though I laugh about it, it is a highly self-protective, relational-destroying type of entity. And so pride is what allows a husband to come home and he yells at his kids and alienates his wife and his pride that won't allow him to admit that it's his fault and that it was his bad day and the pressures at work that caused him to do so. It's pride in a wife that won't admit that her years of subtle manipulation and passive-aggressive anger have contributed just as much to the marital problems as the husband's raging. It's pride that won't allow a husband to make the first move, even though the Bible tells him to, when it comes to asking for forgiveness and trying to heal a hurt or neglect with his wife. And most tragically, it's pride that creates that gridlock that we've either seen in our own marriages or in some marriages where the dysfunctions clash and we're at gridlock and nobody's going to budge. What do you think that's about? That's about pride. It's just pride living in you and me. And here is the most dangerous thing about pride, and this is where our culture dupes us, is that in our everyday worlds, take your relational base out of it, in your business, or say in the sports world, they don't think pride is all that big of an issue, and they've actually found a way to work around pride in such a way that pragmatically is workable. In other words, what I mean by that is that in the sports world, if somebody has a lot of pride, I see Sean here, in the sports world, if somebody has a lot of pride, you know, that's kind of a badge of honor. That's kind of a good thing, and it motivates you on the field, and you can go out and you know, hurt somebody and, 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 and excel in athletic ability. I mean, so sports have, have elevated pride to almost a good thing, and they tend to get away with it. 
Or in the business world, of many of you know, if you're fueled by pride and getting ahead and advancing and elevating yourself, you can go fairly far. So we've got two examples, sports and business, where pride actually seems to work. Here's the problem. Drag that same mindset into your most key relationships, and you will realize immediately the destructive nature of pride. Your marriage, your relationship with your children, your key friendships have not the forgiving nature of pride like business and sports. That's the problem. And by the way, that's a good thing too because God has wired our relationships to be the kind of things that do not function on pride, they function on humility. And that's the recipe, by the way, to dealing with pride is humility. The Bible makes that really clear. Remember James 4, verse 6? It says, but he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we learned a few weeks ago, humility is simply that right estimation of yourself, seeing who you are in light of God and those around you, not too haughty, not too low, a right estimation. And when you're in that sweet spot, you're going to be okay in your relationships. But any other place, a place of pride, and you're in trouble. You know, I had a very interesting and pleasantly surprising thing happen to me this week that I want to share with you that I think you'll find kind of life-giving as well. One of the things that we're doing in this series uh, that we're in right now on grace and family is that we're providing a video curriculum for all of our small groups, about 1,500 people, that they can use for their small group discussion. And this week, I walked into a room right behind the stage here where my job was to interview four people for our video curriculum this week when it came to marital breakdown. First guy was Dr. Greg Crow, who's a psychologist, a Christian psychologist in private practice here in the Valley. Great guy. The second... Two, next third, third, second and third people were a couple, Bill and Gail, who had recently experienced marital breakdown and are now on the road to healing. And then the fourth was a young gal by the name of Sharla, whose parents were divorced when she was younger, and now she's making sense of that as a newly married younger woman. And I'll never forget, for as long as I live, the story that Bill and Gail shared with me that I'm going to share with you here right now. They, unlike Rustin and Jamie, who are recently married, Bill and Gail have been married for decades now. They have two grown children, the one who's almost completely grown. And up until a few months ago, Bill thought everything was just going great. Until one Sunday after church of all places, Gail came unglued and hit what she called the boiling point. And the boiling point basically boiled over because uh, of what she would cite as Bill's just continual chronic problem, again communication, and how he communicated with her in very inappropriate ways. In other words, when he would have an argument with her or want to communicate something to her, he would do so, and these are his own words, loudly and with lots of expletives. Bill's kind of a refined guy, as you'll see in a minute here, and so when he says loudly with lots of expletives, I interpreted that as meaning you yell and swear a lot when you communicate with your wife. And that's indeed what was happening in their marriage. And though Bill knew that was wrong, it was something he continued on for years until a point a, few sun- a little while ago on a Sunday where Gail had had enough. And on that day that she had enough, she declared the marriage over. She said, I've given you plenty of time to redeem this. I can't take it anymore. It's borderline abuse. I'm done. Wouldn't you know, out of the mouth of babes, her, her teenage daughter was there to witness all of this and said to her mom, Mom, before you make a rash decision like that, would you at least call the church? Probably a good thing to do. 
And so on Sunday afternoon, she called the church here. And some of you don't know this, but we have a pastor on call 24-7 at the church. If you call, we will provide a pastor for you. We are a church for crying out loud. So on that Sunday afternoon, they provided a pastor for Gail. And it was Joe Bubar. You guys remember Joe? He's still on staff here. Guy who led us in worship for a few years before Troy. Joe's a sweet man. Joe met with Gail on that Sunday afternoon. He, call, he, he, he talked her off the ledge and basically said, I want you to see our marriage pastor the next day. So Gail went home. She went home that night and unloaded on Bill, basically said, you're not sleeping in my bedroom, you're in this bedroom, this marriage is over, but I will give you one shot to go see our marriage pastor. So as Bill tells the story, the next day, he went to see our marriage pastor. And as Bill was interviewing Bill, he said, you know, the marriage pastor shared this with me and that with me, and Gail shared this with me and that with me, and I saw what they were saying, and I immediately committed to adjusting and repenting and doing what I needed to do to save my marriage. At that point in the interview, I, I thought to myself, that just sounded so easy. I mean, I'd never met this couple before, but I thought that just sounds almost too textbook and highly unusual. So in the interview, I pushed back at that moment. And I said, you know, most men at that point would feel angry and defensive and they'd start pointing the finger back and yada, yada, yada. And I said, what did you go through at that time? And I want to show you the interview right now. I'm going to show you just four minutes out of the 24-minute interview. And then we're going to come back and discuss this. But I want you to see, look at this interplay between Bill and myself with a little bit of Greg and Gail thrown in and see if you see something that I saw. Look up here on the screen. Bill, tell us, you know, a lot of men can relate to your journey. I mean, if I've heard once, I've heard a hundred times about a, a man who thinks seemingly they're doing great in their marriage, everything's going wonderful. Dr. Crow could tell us the same thing. And they feel very blindsided by a wife all of a sudden who points out some significant dissatisfaction and even the, the ultimatum of, hey, I'm done, you know. And it really does throw a man. And, 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 and many men get very defensive at that point. They tend to shut down. They tend to get angry, which never helps the situation at all. In fact, it just exasperates it tremendously. I'm sure you had those feelings. I'm sure you had even maybe those initial responses. But how did you get over that hump? How, what eventually changed in you would allow you to receive what Gail was saying and, and to drop your pride and in a more non-defensive way address your own issues? Well, you know, Jamie, I'm not sure that I went through all those stages that you described because sure. Gail has always been the love of my life. Mm. I mean, there's not been a, a time when I would think or say that, you know, she wasn't the love of my life. She's very loving, caring, supportive, and whether we have difficulties or not, she's very helpful. I mean, we went through financial crisis, and she never, she was always very respectful and helpful. So having said that, when the love of my life told me that I wasn't the person that I should be, I owned it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I owned it. Yeah. Well, I bought it. Okay. And I started my marriage ministry session the next day by thanking the minister who talked to Gail, who was Joe Bubar. He was the emergency physician, you know, emergency minister on call. And say, thank you for permitting me the opportunity to try to save my marriage. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I saw, I, you know, I believe that I will be judged by God, and I do believe that I want to leave a godly legacy of children that are loving and respectful and God-honoring. So what I love about your story, Bill and Greg, I love your comment on this too, is that in one sense, that is refreshingly unique. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I talked about this week 
as we talk about marital breakdown, is pride and, and how pride is just such a destroyer of marriages, especially when somebody's confronted with their own sin or, or mistakes or failures or what have you. And it just seems like God ran incredible interference in your soul, Bill, and allowed you to drop your pride very quickly before, as I mentioned, all those other things kind of crept in and gave you a very tender heart for your wife, Gail. And I'm telling you, just from somebody who's seen this, you know, way too many times, that was, that was really of the Lord, and that was a powerful thing because that enabled you then to own your own stuff, not get defensive, not point the finger back at Gail, but to say as the man of the house, okay, I'm going to be a man and I'm going to own this. I'm going to own my contribution to this. And, uh, and, and I don't know, Greg, did you see that too? I mean, that probably saved him a year of therapy right there. Yeah, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, just taking that approach right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, it really would. It yeah, Bill really was would. very good about that. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I want to say about this is, after the first session, the finger got pointed back at me because I realized yeah. it wasn't just Bill. I was also preventing the marriage from communicating and being intimate. So it was also a wake-up call for me. Where have you been in all this? You've yep. been just taking the back seat. You should have been active, too, in trying to use the tools that's one of the things about the church. There's so many tools that we could have used that we ignored. Yeah. And now we see those tools and say, oh, gee, there's a program. We should go to that. Oh, let's, let's take advantage of that. There's a lot going on in that interaction with Gail and Bill there. But just there's, there's a couple things I, I, I need you to see that I think make all the difference in restoring marriage once it's broken down. The first thing is that, you, did you notice this? Bill took the lead. He dropped his pride. He owned his stuff. And I would submit to you, especially to you men, this was the turning point in his marital restoration. It is and it was. The fact that Bill humbled himself in that moment. And you saw me push back. Like, come on, dude. You had to have been angry. You had to have been defensive. You had to have gone through all those things. And he said, well, no disrespect, Pastor, but I didn't. I didn't go through that. He had an immediate response, and I don't know if it endeared you like it did me, but when he said on multiple times there, this is the love of my life, this is the woman that's the wife of my youth, I love her, and if she has something to say even hard into my life, I'm all ears, and I'm owning it. I'm telling you, Greg is right when he said that saved them a year of therapy right there. You know, Ephesians chapter 5 calls men to be the leader, calls men to be the leader of the family. But I don't think what men, most men understand is that part of leading is leading through repenting, leading through owning, leading through humbling yourself when you've been wrong. And I don't know if you caught this too, but Bill didn't own it and then at the same breath say, but you got issues too, sister. He didn't do that. He didn't own it and say, but you're no peach to live with either, so you better own your stuff too. I mean, we laugh at that, but how many times do we do that as men? where you go, okay, you know what, this is probably a 60-40 split, so I'll own my 60 if you'll own your 40. I'm telling you, that's where it gets muddy. That's where it backfires. And you heard Gail. He actually could have done that. Gail knew that there were issues in her life too. But isn't it interesting? He didn't lead with that foot. He didn't lead with that at all. He owned his issues, and in owning his issues, this is the second thing I need you to see, especially, again, men, that paved the way for her to own her issues. But after he did so, it allowed him to allow her the freedom in that leadership that he provided to then say, okay, you, you know what, I got issues too here. Let's meet halfway. I mean, we all know that when a marriage breaks down, it takes two to tango. 
But if you don't hear anything else here this morning or this afternoon, please hear this. you got to resist your pride. And you got to own your stuff. And especially to you men, I beg you, because God has called you to be the leaders of the family, to drop your pride first. Do that, try that, and watch what happens as God enters in and begins to restore something you never thought could be restored. So we reignite communication, we resist pride, and then lastly, and with this we're done, and we're almost completely out of time, and we have to go to the communion table, but I have to say this, the third key is to rely on Jesus Christ. Man, I can't say this strongly enough, church. Rely upon Jesus Christ. I'll tell you a funny story. I meet with a group of men every Thursday morning. That's my personal accountability group of peers that I meet with just for my own soul and spiritual life and all of that. One of the guys in it is Dr. Paul Wagner, who teaches at the seminary and is one of our Sunday school teachers and just an awesome, very mature, wonderful guy. Nice as you're ever going to find. And I never share my outline with these guys, but this week I decided to share my outline with this because the stakes are high in a message like this on when the marriage goes south and all that. And so I shared with them the first point and the second point and then the third point I never gave you. And then I got to this fourth point that said rely on Jesus Christ. And Paul was one of the nicest guys in the world, but his basic response was, was this. Well, like, duh, everybody knows that and it is church, so they're going to be expecting you to say that. And he said, I'm not sure that it has the punch that you think it does by saying rely on Jesus Christ. And I said, well, then try this on this for size, Paul. I said, what I mean by rely on Jesus Christ is absolute dependence on God through Jesus Christ and secondly, to the point that it makes a difference and a dent in all the relationships around you. And he said, now you're getting somewhere. Now you're getting somewhere. Folks, listen. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And I'm here to tell you this afternoon that, that if you never get to the point where Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, where you, have, where you have submitted to him as fully as you can right now, then you'll never see, as we saw earlier, what happens with Rustin and Jamie, a movement of God like that in your life. God is waiting to move in your life. He's waiting to move in your marriage. He only requires one thing. Now, don't miss this. He requires all of you. He requires your entire heart, your entire mind, your entire strength, your entire soul in dependence upon him. And he says, once I have you, then I'm going to move in your life. And I think one of the things that keeps some of us back when it comes to seeing God move, and we salivate after these moves, I know you do, in, in the ways that we see him move in other people's lives, is we've not really fully surrendered to him. And so I'm telling you, a key to your marriage is full surrender to Jesus Christ. I, I, as I've said to you before, I became a Christian about 30 years ago, and on that day that I bent the knee to Jesus, I knew that everything would be different. I knew that my spiritual life would go from black and white to technicolor. But as I've said to you guys before, too, it's been ebb and flow since then. There have been times where I've, I've been in deep submission to him, and there's been times where I'm just playing games. And I'm telling you, if you're at a point where you're playing games, maybe today it's time for you to go into a place of deeper submission. And that means maybe even accepting Christ for the very first time. 